Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, depending on where you are. And if it's evening, it's actually cocktail hour, so maybe that would be a really good idea. Because it's only three in the afternoon here in Phoenix, I am drinking tea. What are you drinking? Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. And a very Scottsdale-looking cup. It is. Actually, it's France. Um, I brought it home from when we lived in France for six weeks in my suitcase, which was an act of insanity, but nevertheless, I did. But you must love the cup in order to protect it in international travel. Just what you need to have some a, a china cup to take and care I of. Bought, I bought some chestnut-handled steak knives at the same time, and they too came home with me, but this was um, a challenge at security. Anyway, here we are. And I've I have a very nice introduction to Hank, although I like to think that anybody watching this doesn't actually need this, but nonetheless, I'm going to read it because this is the formal introduction. Hank Philippi Ryan is the USA Today bestseller of 14 novels of suspense. She has also won multiple prestigious awards for her crime fiction, which I can attest to because I've been there while that's been happening. Five Agathas, Five Anthonys, and the coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. She's also been nominated a bunch of times, too, I think, if I remember correctly. She's also the on-air investigative reporter for Boston's WHDH-TV and has won 37 Emmys, which if Hank and I have time, we will tell you a very funny story about our 37 Emmys, but uh, by a person who doesn't watch television and so did not appreciate the fact that Emmys were actually significant. <laughs> 14 Edward R. Murrow Awards and dozens of other honors for her groundbreaking journalism, which I would interpolate as one reason she is such a crackerjack novelist, because anybody who can do great journalism um, has lots of material for creating fiction. Is that not true? Well, I, it's that's a very perceptive and wise thing, as always, as as you always are, Barbara. But I do think that it's it's journalism is looking for a story. Journalism is searching out a story. It's also being um, able to work on a story without really knowing what the ending of it is, because if you knew the ending, it wouldn't be new. So I don't know the ending of my books, but that's okay. I'm in search of the story the whole time. And, you know, I've been a television reporter for 43 years, which means I've been telling stories for 43 years, right? With a beginning, middle, and an end with a character you care about, a problem that needs to be solved, where the good guys win and the bad guys get what's coming to them. And in the end, you get some justice and you change the world a little bit. And you know, in fiction, I make stuff up and in investigative reporting, I clearly don't, but it is the same rhythm. It is the same pace. I don't want you to turn the channel when my stories are on. And I want, to miss, I want you to miss your stop on the subway when you're reading the books. It's the same you know, it's the same combination of entertainment and enlightenment and education and life-changing storytelling. And so it's very similar. It's very similar. Similar. I love your alliteration. That was really good. E after E after E. You gotta love it. But I guess my I guess my thought was, because I've been talking to a number of people lately in for various events about um what sparks off the idea for a story. And I would think that you've run across situations that you know you had to cover in journalism, however they broke, but might have given you a nudge towards the story idea for your fiction. Yeah, you know, I've wired myself with hidden cameras and confronted corrupt politicians and chased down criminals and gone undercover and in disguise. So it would be really a waste of, you know, 40 years of experience 
not to put that in the books. Yeah. But it's a funny kind of uh, sort of Rubik's Cubey combination of a little bit from this story and a little bit from that story and a little bit from my criminal defense attorney husband's cases, um, putting it all together and you sort of like a Rubik's Cube, twist and turn and come up with something that's absolutely fictional. Um, and I mean, I've been in at murder scenes and in fires and with SWAT teams and in hurricanes and ice storms and cold weather like we're having right now. Um, so I know how people behave too. And that also comes into this. You know, we know what people sound like when they're lying. You know, we, we understand, right? We understand when someone's trying to, you know, as a television reporter, somebody's always trying to convince me of something. And that makes me understand that there's always another side of the story that maybe I just can peel away. So again, all of that, all of that goes into, goes into television. It, you know, the house guest isn't from a real story though, I have to tell you. It's Why from, I hope not. Well, well, it's from real life, you know, which yeah. is not a story that I covered, but someone that I knew, um, this wonderful woman, I mean, smart, successful, savvy, had a great job, brilliant career, happily married to this guy. Um, and every morning she would go off to work and send him off to his job as a, whatever he was, accountant or insurance person or whatever. And everything was just fine. And you know, those people like the next big sale is just around the corner and the next big deal is just about to happen. You know, those people, right. and she would come home and be all supportive and wonderful. <laughs> and it went on for several years until the police came until the police came to their door and he had never gone to work at all. He had never, the job was imaginary and he had been home doing illegal things, which we shouldn't even discuss on the computer all day. And she had no idea. She just wow. didn't know. And it made me like, then during the pandemic, you know, I'm sitting right here at this desk writing. My husband, Jonathan has commandeered the, the breakfast room as his law office. And so he's in the breakfast room law lawyering. And it made me realize that even though we're a room or two away from each other, we really don't know what the other one is doing. You know, my husband is a paragon, you know, and he's he, he's lovely and he's brilliant, but he's not doing anything untoward, but he could be. And from his point of view, I'm supposed to be in here writing my next book. And that's what I tell him that I'm doing. But, you know, I could be typing all work and no play makes Hank a dull girl, like in The Shining all day, and he wouldn't know. So I started thinking for the house guest, how much do we really know about that person who's on the pillow next to us? How much do we really know about their, what they're really doing? And that was sort of that was sort of the impetus for the house guest. I mean, we say when when things happen, you know, in the Madoff case, oh, she must have known. You know, she's not paying attention. But I learned in my research, and we can talk about this, that most women involved were, whose husbands are doing something untoward just don't even know until the police come. Do you know, they came up, I think it was last night talking to your friend, Deborah Goodrich-Royce um, about psychopaths and serial killers. It might've been the night before, but I think it was Deborah. You have such I a fun lose, life. I kind of lose track, you know, but anyway, one, okay. And, and, you know, the question arose as it often does, is, you know, why wouldn't the wife have known that her husband, you know, was a serial killer? And, you know, sometimes I mean, I think just from what I've learned that 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 
you could lie to yourself or not notice that, whichever way you want to look at it, much more easily than, let's say, if, if the man were an abuser. I mean, there are wives who deny, you know, abuse. But I think to really penetrate a psychopath would be extremely difficult. I think it came up when somebody said, how could that woman have married um, Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy, exactly, yeah. And, you know, I, I can easily see why somebody would have married Ted Bundy because, you know, all of that is sunk so deep inside him that um, it wouldn't, it, it just isn't like he was wearing it on his forehead. Well, exactly. I mean, think of all the times that you hear people say he was such a nice guy. He seemed like such a quiet, introverted guy. I found this a, a case in um, Indiana uh, of a of a of a woman who was married to a man and had three children, and he, you know, she thought he was from time to time a little quirky, but that was sort of all it was. And she loved him, and he loved her, and the children were lovely and fine. And one day, one day, one of their kids found in the backyard buried in the woods behind their house a skull so you know she takes the skull to her husband and says sweetheart look what jimmy found in the backyard and the husband says oh yeah that's my um father's old medical school skeleton and the woman says oh okay okay really and so in hindsight we say really but you know she believed it and then later he was just act, acting very strange. So she finally called the police and said, you know, something is going on. And it turned out they found at least 11 murder victims that he had buried ostensibly in the woods. Um, and he was a crazy serial killer. And he finally, he shot himself before they could crack down on him or arrest him. But they found thousands of bones. And here's this perfectly nice suburban woman with a perfectly nice suburban family and she just she just didn't know she just didn't know I mean did they and Mrs. Madoff you know has always said she didn't know about what her husband was doing well that I can easily understand you know because he wasn't doing it at home and I think maybe that's the difference between wives denying children being abused in the home or something because it's actually in the home mm -hmm. as compared to the guy burying bones in the woods or Bernie you know ripping off people at yeah. the office because they were house and you you know, yeah. that would be really hard if it were going on in your house. You know, that's like willful blindness or something. But I can understand it if it's, you know, if it's outside the house. The husband goes to the office. What do they do? Yeah. You know, who knows what they do? That's very true. So you have an interesting husband and wife duo here in the house guest. I haven't finished this introduction. So since I was oh. asked to read it, I'm going to finish it. <laughs> oh, God. Right. National Book Review is called Hank a master at crafting suspenseful mysteries and a superb and gifted storyteller, which is really true. Um, it, they don't happen to mention how generous she is with other authors, how wonderful she is about um, leading people towards books that they would like and supporting the whole world of crime fiction and being a fantastic host. I've had the pleasure of watching Hank um, moderate or host any number of events, some of them at the Poison Pen, amazingly enough. Do you remember, do you remember Ian Rankin? Do you remember the incredible speech that Ian Rankin gave, gave when we had that event at the Biltmore for Ian on the occasion of his 30th birthday? And you and I stood over on the side and cried. It was so cried amazing. Cried and cried about, about how he wrote his books and how his hometown, what his hometown meant to him and about how he had grown up on literature and it was it was genius it was it was brilliant it really yes, was absolutely. it was one of the most inspirational things i have ever listened to so hank and i have had a lot of experiences together doing things like that but 
She's way better than I am at actually hosting things. So kudos to her. She's been named best thriller. Her novels rather have been named best thrillers of the year by Library Journal, New York Post, BookBub, PopSugar, etc. And now we get to back to her current book is The House Guest. So I didn't want to waste it since I actually printed it out on request. <laughs> Thank you. That's why I did it. You're entirely welcome. And, you know, I, I'm sure that there, well, I don't know if there could be an audience that actually needs you an introduction to you. Do you think there are? Oh my golly, I think that most everybody needs an introduction. You know, it's I'm I'm always enchanted to meet new people. And at every event, there's someone who I've never met before or I've never seen before who just came in with their friend and it's it's new. So, you know, we we've been friends for so many years. I mean, almost 20 years, I think. Um it's and different. so we know each other, but I love that the community changes and grows. So I'm always very um, pleased when someone reads my introduction. So thank you. Plus, it's reassuring to hear, you know, on the days that I have a bad writing day and I think I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm never going to be able to write another book. And I hear something like that. And I think, hmm, okay, well, it's worked before. So maybe it'll work again. That's really hard to imagine you with any breach of confidence. But in any case... Um, and you do magically write book after book after book, which are amazing. I have to say that I was running short on time due to the amazing cleaning efforts that I've been making in our annex. But I, I reread the end of this book, which unfortunately we can't talk about. And I thought, how in the world did you ever keep all the moving pieces in this book moving um, in a way that that works out well? Since we can't talk about the beginning, the end of the book, let's go back and talk more about the beginning, however much you feel like you can reveal. Um, but maybe let's start, I have a better idea. Let's start with this. You keep, you keep have referred to this as a cat and mouse thriller. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by a cat and mouse thriller as opposed to like a military thriller or- Oh, that's interesting. Oh, what a good question. Or a serial killer question to, or something. To me, a cat and mouse thriller, and you know my books, they're not graphically violent. There's no graphic sex. There's not even really inappropriate mm -hmm. language. But what there is, is manipulation and gaslighting and deception and sort of the destruction that people do to each other emotionally, psychologically, that sometimes what we do, what we say to each other is so devastatingly emotionally harmful that it's almost worse than getting shot. I mean, it's not, but it feels, you feel terrible. You can ruin someone's life by the wrong word, by, by manipulation, by gaslight. And so I'm fascinated by that psychological, emotional destruction that people do to each other and in a cat and mouse game what is the cat and mouse what do cat the cat what are the cats and the mice what are their goals the cat wants something the cat wants to get that mouse for something and there's a chase because the mouse the mouse the mouse is not dumb I almost said the mouses the mice the mice are not dumb and the cat is not dumb the cat the mouse is smaller and the cat is stronger but the mouse is smarter so, I, or something like that. I'm seeing really? a cartoon in my head. We've said Tom <laughs> and Jerry. So it's a chase. It's an emotional, psychological chase where two characters want something and they're going to do anything they can to get it. I always ask myself when I'm writing, what does this character want and how far will they go to get it and why? 
And that's the cat and mouse game. Someone wants something and they're after another person who may not know that they're being pursued. And that's another key element as well. And then in my books, you know, I set up like a cat and mouse game, like X person is going after Y person. And we know this. And then, but what if Y person is actually going after X person and they don't know? So I always say it's a cat and mouse thriller but which character is the cat and which character is the mouse? And that's one of the things that I think I try to keep suspenseful in the books. Well, you do a wonderful job and you definitely can have, you have to have X and Y. You have to have two players here. You have to have a cat and a mouse. What if you throw in a Z? Does the Z change the dynamic? You know, this triangular structure of X, Y, and Z is the most fascinating thing that there could ever be. And that is that exists in the house guest as well, as you well know. And so if X and Y, no, we're going to totally do math here in <laughs> talking about writing. I don't want to do that. We're, this is not algebra. But if one person has a goal and another person has a goal and another person has a goal, it can be person X and person Y versus person Z. Right. Or what if it's person X and person Z versus person Y? How the relationships change. Every time you have a triangle of any kind, the action is going to be affected by whether it's two against, which two against which one and who will prevail. Right. And I, again, I do that in the house guest as well because you don't really know whose side anyone is on. Um, each person is out for themselves but some of them are allied, but you just don't know which ones and why. But isn't that inevitable in any time you have three people in a triangle? Does it always come down to two against one? Or not two against one, but isn't there always, you know, I'm one of three children, for example. And so I know, you know, that there's a shifting, but there's always that dynamic of two joining up in one, you know, but it can change. It could be two and the one, but then it can be one over here and then that person's out. You know, depending on what someone wants yeah. and depending on who has the power. And that's what it, that's what a novel of suspense is. What does someone want and who has the power? And to write a novel of suspense, a standalone like the house is, like the house guest is, a standalone like the house guest is, this is the only story there'll ever be about Alyssa McCallan and Brie Lawrence and Des Russo and Bill McCallan. It's the only story that you'll ever hear about them. And so my readers are smart. All of you out there are smart readers. And you know that I'm going to try to fool you. And you're trying to guess what's going to happen in the book. So I know that you're trying to guess. So I'm not going to do what you think I might do. But then you're smarter. So you think, oh, she's going to do the other thing. So I think, mm -mm, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that either. So my job throughout is to try to keep you, try to pull the rug out from under you. And in a standalone, anybody can be good. And anybody can be bad, right? Anybody can be good at the beginning of the book and bad at the end. Anybody can be telling the truth. Anybody can be lying. And anyone can die. That's right. Anyone can die in a standalone. And you know that as readers. You know that anyone can die. So there is absolutely nothing that you can take for granted in reading a standalone because that's the power that we have as authors is that in a standalone, uh, you just never know. Which makes it so exciting to read them and i'm finding that more and more authors actually like writing them for those very reasons it's yeah. more work to set up a new world yes. every single time but on the other hand um it's really satisfying to put everybody into play everybody at risk 
and the reader does not come, you know, go in and exit the book knowing that Jack Reacher is getting on the bus, you know, for yet another adventure. I mean, kudos to the series writers because- Absolutely. Well, you've written the series, so you oh, know how that goes. Exactly. And, you know, you know that Jane Ryland isn't going to die in the Jane Ryland books because she's coming back for the next in the series. So it's up to, in that, in a series, it's up to the author. The author's challenge is to make a compelling high stakes life and death drama where it's not based on the mortality of the main character. Because right. you know, just as you say, Jack Reacher's not going to die. And still they're page turning thrillers. How, how does that happen? That's, it's a skill. It is. And I think it's interesting that you can write both. You know, that you can write a series and then you can write a standalone. Do you find that if you exit the series to write a standalone, that that's energizing and refreshing? And then the same is true if you went back to your series character, it's sort of like going home and that's a whole different set of emotions? I'm sure it would be. I'm not quite sure what home is. You know, that's an interesting question because my first nine books, nine, is that right? Were series books and I loved it. But when I started writing Trust Me, my first standalone, Trust yeah. Me, I thought, oh, this is this is good. This is a this is a good thing. I love that one time only feeling of power. You know, that this is this is this is the most important thing that's ever happened to this person's life. And now you're going to get to read about it. And they had a life before the book and they have a life after the book, which you'll understand. Um, but you're going to get to know just the good part. So I'm pretty comfortable with that. If there's ever comfort in writing, I'm not sure there ever is comfort. No, but I think you like challenging yourself. And so, you know, comfort is not going to be part of your skill set here. Um, let's talk about the character here, because while we can't talk about how it all comes out, we can at least talk about how it starts. So tell us a bit about Alyssa. Well, in the Alyssa McCallan is the star of the story. It's one point of view. It's only Alyssa McCallan's point of view. And when Alyssa, when the book opens, Alyssa is incredibly unhappy. She has been happily married for the past eight years to a man that she loves and who she lo thought loved her. Um, and one morning at the beginning of the novel, he's just walked out. He has said, I've had it. I've had enough. I need a break. And Alyssa's like, you need a break, like I'm a, like you can put me on pause, like I'm a video. Um, and he leaves her and he threatens to take the house and they're, he's affluent and powerful and tough and really manipulative. Um, but he, you know, he's sort of benevolent. He runs a charity organization um, and he's also got some inheritance, a lot of inheritance. So Alyssa McAllen, hard scrabble beginning, winds up being married to the powerful, manipulative, but affluent and loving Bill McAllen. One day he walks out and leaves Alyssa alone. She's without money now, potentially. She was without a house now, potentially. And Bill has taken all the friends. And what is she going to do? She's terrified and bereft. And she's also a little nervous because even though she's living in the house by herself, she suspects that Bill has been coming into the house when she's not home just to let her know that he always has the power and he's always in charge. Um, and just when Alyssa thinks all is lost, and this is chapter one, just when <laughs> Alyssa thinks all is lost and she really needs a friend, she finds a new ally, a kind of seductive new ally, a woman who has problems of her own. And the two of them decide 
um, that maybe they can solve each other's problems. So I guess the tagline would be, in a divorce, one spouse gets all the friends. What does the other one get? If they're lucky, they get the benefits. So people have called this Gaslight meets Thelma and Louise via strangers on a train. And if you think you know what that is, you might, but don't forget the gaslight part. So who is gaslighting who? And, and that is the house guest. I love it. Those are three amazing movies all lined up there to describe a book. But, you know, basically movies are storytelling, just like novels are. So it makes perfectly good sense. Do you think, you know, you compare these to movies because movies have such a wide appeal? More people watch a movie in general than have read a book. Mm, isn't that interesting? Well, and I do think that some of these really, truly classic, iconic movies bring us together. I mean, we know what Gaslight is about. It's about a husband trying to convince a woman that his wife, that she's crazy, that she's completely losing it. So we've taken it to mean somebody who's trying to convince someone emotionally of something. Thelma and Louise, instantly we know that's two best friends, two women friends who maybe or not Come, may not come to a good end, but they're in it together. They're the power team. And, all, and then Strangers on a Train, you know that, the classic um, crisscross. I'll take care of your problem. You take care of my problem. No one knows we know each other and we'll make this work. So if you put those all together, we know that this story is about greed and divorce and betrayal and female empowerment and revenge. And all of, those, all of those elements are in the house guest and all of those elements are in those three movies. So it's just sort of a way of shorthanding what the book is about. No, I understand that. I just, as I said, I find it interesting because, you know, some I, somebody said to me, isn't that sort of apples and oranges, you know, that you've got novels and you've got movies, but no, because the truth is, you know, they're powerful stories, whether yeah. they're delivered on the screen or whether they're delivered in print. Um, and whether I, we watch the movies on the screen, watch the story on the screen, right. or whether we see the story in our mind, it's still that same, it's still that same um, emotional story, still that same experience. It is the same experience. You know, once we did, a, I can't even remember why, but we did some sort of a program about the Maltese Falcon. I can't remember where it was or anything. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, I thought to myself, I wonder how many people have actually ever read oh. Maltese Falcon. I bet 90% of this audience has seen the movie. And, you know, it's Humphrey Bogart and in, in the whole bit. And so I asked. And in fact, I was right that virtually everyone there had come to the Thin Man from the movie and had never read the book. The Maltese Falcon, yeah. Yeah. And I, I and, and you know, in the book, he doesn't, Sam Spade doesn't look like Henry Bo Humphrey Bogart, Humphrey Bogart. He doesn't look like Humphrey Sam Bogart. Sam Spade doesn't look like Humphrey Bogart at all. Completely no, the opposite. But we picture him as Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, no, we absolutely do. But I, I think what I'm saying, I think it's so interesting that, you know, the story that came from the book went to the screen and most people saw it on the screen, but think they read the book. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really like To Kill a Mockingbird. Many yeah. more people have seen the movie, I bet, than re have read the book. It's very different. The movie is only one little tiny segment, but we think of To Kill a Mockingbird as, as the movie, most people. So in writing this kind of book, the cat and mouse book, where there are surprising things going on, Deborah and I had a, it, somebody raised the question last night. I thought it was an interesting one. What's the difference between a reveal and a twist? 
Oh, golly, you know, um, I will confess to you that I, I don't think about it that way as clinically as that. Um, we were talking earlier about that my stories are what does someone want and how far will they go to get it? And in real life, in the lives that you and I and all of us listening to this uh, discussion have, there are things that are just surprises along the way, things that happen to us that we never could have expected that we have to learn how to deal with. And making a decision about something surprising is how character is revealed. And the, de the decision that people make as a result of this apocalyptic rug from getting pulled out from under them, that reveals their character too, right? What they do, do they do the benevolent, loving, wonderful, sympathetic thing, or the sort of venal, selfish, um, manipulative, illegal thing? How do they react? So a reveal and a twist, to me, it's just the surprises of life, the surprises of life. And when, and I think Sometimes the power of an author is to set up the perception for the reader that the world is a certain way because you're looking at it through the point of view of one of the characters and you believe that character. This is how the world is. Oh, okay. And then what if the character is wrong? What if the character is wrong? Say, and they say, oh my golly, she was driving the car? How, how did that happen? I didn't know that or she has, I wouldn't ever do this, but she has a twin. I, I didn't know that. It's something that you don't know. That's reveal. Okay. So that's a reveal. I'm now talking myself into this. It's something that the, that the, that the reader doesn't know, but that someone knows and it is, and it is shown, it is revealed to the audience at the time that the author wants to reveal it. In my situation though, I don't know it. You know, it's not a reveal to me. It's a surprise to me. So when someone says she has a twin, again, I would never do that. But I'm using that because I never would and I don't want to spoil anything. Um, I think, oh my golly, that's so interesting. Who'd have thought? You know, I had no idea about that. Um, a twist is when you, and it often happens sort of in the middle of the book. A twist is when you take everything you ever thought you knew that was real in a, in a novel and you just make it be something else. That the good guy is actually bad. Ha ha. And that's a twist. Um, it's, it's a very unexpected um, reversal or change of the entire structure uh, of the novel. You know, right, which I think, talk about movies. We were agreeing that um, Vertigo is an excellent example of that. You know, everything you thought you knew was going on in Vertigo. And, and Gone Girl, you know, yeah totally pulls the rug out from under you in the middle of the book. The, um, is it the Claire McIntosh book, I Let You Go? Yeah, um, that, that is her book, yeah. And this massive twist in, in mm -hmm. the middle of the book. And, and, and lots of books have those now. It's almost, you, you can sort of look at page 200 and see where the, where the change, that twist is going to come. And I, and I do think, I always, I always worry when someone says, oh, there's this big twist. And I think, don't tell me that. Because now I'm going to be reading the book in you know, right, expecting assuming, it. looking for it. Well, I mean, I think I think that it's you know it's a nice distinction. I really do. You know, reveal is okay. You know, this is what's been going on, and now I'm going to let you in on it. Whereas the twist just knocks everything, you yeah. know, 
And so you and Deborah are actually in agreement. <laughs> As always. Are. Right. Uh, well, I know you've talked to her. So, you know, I thought it was uh, maybe it was something you discussed. No, we've done several events together. And, I you know, know, she's lovely. Reef Road is really great. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we sort of had a meeting of the minds. I think we're sort of similar and had a similar trajectory and similar passions it's you know she's and she only lives a couple hours from me so right but and she has a background in theater and is you know as an actress and so forth which is not the same as being an investigative journalist but nonetheless is one where she's used to telling stories in a different media so you know so I think and and you're both blonde besides <laughs> sort of <laughs> we are, some right? days <laughs> indeed indeed we are so um you have spent an incredible amount of time doing um, virtual events and now live events with other authors. You are so supportive of the writers community. Um, how do you feel about being back out live? It, I'm a little bit apprehensive about it from the standpoint of health. Um, I'm gloriously delighted about it from the standpoint of actually getting to see people. Right. I mean, it, every I went to an event last night with Raina Dye Randall. Uh, for her new book, Night Angels. And there were, you know, there were people there, you know, uh, Rachel Berenbaum was there who wrote Atomic Anna and Trisha Blanchett was there, Herrick's End. And it was, um, I've seen these people, some of them, actually, I had never met any of them in real life. Really? I felt that I knew them from seeing them in these little square boxes on Zoom all the time. And so it almost brings tears to my eyes to see the people in real life. And I know on this tour, I'll, I'm coming to you at the end of August, and there'll be people that I have met online and in these Zooms who I feel as if I really know, and I will never have, I'll never have seen them in real life until you bring us together. And so that real life meeting is, um, as astonishing but I can tell you I'm packing for the book tour right now and I realized that my my cosmetic bag that I kept packed all the time because I was on the road all the time before the pandemic I want you to know that three-year-old toothpaste that has been opened is no long is no longer good it is no longer it is no longer gushy it is solid so um, the three-year-old cosmetics have all gone and I'm packing up like crazy to head out on the road and see everyone. So it's exciting. It's what it you is think? exciting. I have, to, no, I have the same reaction. Part of me worries and part of me, you know, has, but, you know, Zoom is a peculiar in, intimacy in that, you know, since you can't see anybody, sometimes I feel that Zoom conversations have a degree of intimacy. It's really hard to do when there's an audience there. And this reminds me that I have been remiss in saying that Hank and I are having this conversation today, Friday, February 3rd. But in point of fact, the house guest does not publish until Tuesday, February 7th. How did you do that, Barbara? How, how do you always get ahead of everyone? It's just, it's quite amazing. And I'm so pleased. Look, this is the real, this is the That's real, the real book. And that was my that next point, which is that Hank actually has in her possession, right this moment, our books, because they went shipped to her and um, she's thoughtfully signing them and they will ship to us on Monday. So they won't make it quite on Tuesday, but it will be close enough. And, you know, the answer to your question is, Hank, that if you were here physically today, Friday, they wouldn't have let us do it. But because we were on Zoom and the books, you know, we're not handing over the books before your publication date. The fact that we can have a conversation is is a whole different thing. You have to distinguish between a live event where people 
expect to pick up the book and take it home. And a Zoom conversation, you know, we could have actually done this like two weeks ago and it wouldn't have made any difference in terms of the physical book. And it does act, I think, you know, to encourage people um, to pre-order or, you know, the other thing I really like about Zoom, and not every bookseller would say this, but we sell enough books that we can actually say this, is there are plenty of fans who are audiobook fans or they're digital fans, or they don't live in the United States. Yes. And those people, otherwise, if we weren't doing it this way, really wouldn't get to see you, wouldn't get to have a conversation, wouldn't be interested in the book. You know, I mean, no, I don't mean I it. wouldn't be interested in, you know, talking about the book. So there's a, there's a whole, I don't want to say charitable, because I don't think that's the right word. You're the wordsmith. Tell me what it is. There's a whole sort of thing that happens with a conversation like this. They can't happen if it's, just, if it's you and me and whatever audience actually showed up as though it were a play on Broadway. At the book it makes it be international. It makes it be inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, people don't have to get up and go anywhere. So it's actually, frankly, easy. You know, you just click on Poison Pen Bookstore and there is the next wonderful there person that you'd like to hear about. And it's easy enough to get a book from you. You know, that's one-click ordering as well. So it's it's the best of all worlds. And you can still go make dinner afterward. Well, that's true. I mean, that's why we stream all our events from the bookstore, which in some ways is self-defeating in terms of audience. I was, I was there Tuesday. Patrick did an event Monday night. And Tuesday, uh, there was a couple that came shuffling into the store to pick up the book for Monday night. And I sort of looked at them and they said, well, it was cold. And we yeah. were in our jammies. And we thought, why should we go down? Why should we get dressed and drive all that way when we can just sit down here in front of our smart TV and we can watch the, and then we'll go pick up the book. And I thought, you know, you can't really beat that dynamic. Nope, that's a service. That is a benefit and a service. And it's uh, all outreach, no matter how, no matter how it is. And then they get the joy of listening to the author and to you. And they get the book when they want it. You know, it's sort of- But they also have to everything. watch it when they, you know, they wanted to watch it. I said that to Jane Harper the other night. Um, I said, you'll be really surprised because there might be only 50 or 60 people actually online while we're coming this conversation. And by tomorrow, it will have jumped up to a few hundred. And by the day after, it will jump up to a thousand. And, you know, I find that so interesting that people come to it when they have time for it. Do you know that, that the podcasts that we are doing from these events have had 206,000 downloads? Think about that, you know, that, that that's another whole way that people can experience time with an author. They don't have to sit in front of a screen. They don't have to come down like tonight. If you were doing an event in Boston tonight, how many people do you think would actually Zero. show up? No, no, you know what? They're saying, and, and this has actually happened to me. I'll tell you this in a minute. But if I had an event in Boston tonight, if you and I were in Boston tonight, the governor has said, don't go outside. Don't, don't go right. out. And so, great. That would not be the, that would not be the best. I'll tell you very quickly. I did an event at a bookstore um, in in Newton, my hometown, my my town that I live in now, years ago, years and years ago, in person with Catherine Hall Page. You know Catherine Hall Page. Ooh. You all know Catherine Hall Page. Very well. <laughs> there was a a blizzard. There was a snow emergency in Boston. There was a, it was a blizzard. So I called the bookstore and I said, you know. Uh, you're canceling, right? Because um, it, the governor is saying it's a snow emergency and to, not to drive. So she says, oh no, our, our, our patrons walk. And I said, well, yeah, but it's a blizzard. You know, they're not going to walk. They're not going to walk in a blizzard. 
And she says, oh, yes, they will. Yes, they will. So, okay. So my, my intrepid husband <laughs> takes me to this place, you know, in violation of every law in the universe, Catherine Allpage and her husband came, we're sitting there. Um, and three people came, three. And I thought, well, all right, we're going to just do our best book talk that we've ever, you know, these people are going to be lucky. They're intrepid. They went. And it turned out that um, one of them had just been walking down the street and happened to see it and was freezing and came in. To get warm. <laughs> to get warm. Yeah. One was a 14-year-old kid who wanted to give his 800-page manuscript to Catherine because he was going to be the next child author star. So he sat through this whole conversation that he had no reason to care about only because he wanted to give his manuscript to Catherine. And the other one was this woman. And I thought, I know her, I know her, I know her. And so by golly, I don't remember her name, but I'm just going to be really good. And so afterward, I said to her, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I know, I know you, but um, I just can't place you. Can you help me with this? And she says, oh yeah, I'm the cashier at the CVS drugstore next door. I'm just waiting for the bus. And, right. and so no, that's I, what I, I do hear you. And, you know, I, I used to panic when we had particular weather events here because Phoenix doesn't have any public transportation. And it's an enormous city. It's bigger geographically than Los Angeles now. So we're talking people who sometimes drive 55 minutes or an hour and 10 to, And, you know, when the weather would go bad, I would think there goes the event because there wasn't going to be any afterburner. But now, you know, now we stream the event and it there's there's a no failure. You know, it can't go wrong because there's always going to be an audience out there, regardless of the weather or the parking situation or whatever it might be. Or if at the last minute, for example, if you were coming here tomorrow, the way we had talked about and no planes are flying out of Boston because it's like minus 50 or something in the wind chill, we could have pivoted to Zoom and people would have, you know, been okay with that. And I, I really love that, that, you know, it, it eliminates the catastrophe from, you know, from book events. Because I love that. Eliminates the catastrophe. It does. <laughs> it absolutely does. Just... You know, makes it, makes it seem much easier. Well, The House Guest, which I absolutely love, which comes out Tuesday, let me remind you, and you can still order autographed copies, or you can follow Hank on Book Tour and buy one somewhere else. What are you doing next? Well, this weekend, I am working like crazy. I'm writing a million blogs and doing a million uh, events sort of online to get everything ready, all, the, all my graphics, all my posts, everything. I also, I'm also doing Pashmina TV. Do you know about Pashmina no, TV? No, what's that? Every day uh, live. And some of you who are here, I know that you watch Pashmina TV. Every day I come on Facebook spontaneously live at some point that I don't announce and give away the, a gorgeous house guest Pashmina, oh, which is, uh, I will send you one. I will send you one. And oh, they're, they're voluptuous and cozy, exactly what you need. So you can wear them with the house guest showing, if you like. like I love this. it. Or you can wear them like slinkily with the house covering up the house guest. So we give away a house guest Pashmina. We also give away a house guest shoe bag. See how this is? It's a oh, isn't snow. that beautiful? What a great idea. Because you need it if you're a house guest, right? When you're a house guest, it's you're always too cold so we do I do Pashmina TV I don't know how it got to be named Pashmina TV every day um on Facebook and um then Monday I have an I have online events and then Tuesday I have my online my real life first real life event here in Boston 
Uh, and then I go on the road to Wake Forest and Greenville, South Carolina and Vero Beach and Atlanta and you to you and all over the country and with new toothpaste and ready to go. <laughs> so I mean, I, I'm really thrilled with the reaction to really thrilled with the reaction to the house. You should be. Yeah. You know, Journal Star says it's binge worthy. Yeah. So that was wonderful. And uh, Publishers Weekly said, Ryan is a master of suspense. So I'm getting a t-shirt made with that. On. I think you should. Although you remember the word stellar? Stellar was the buzzword from your last book and your last exactly, review. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. So I can say, because I have actually read it all the way through, that you really do actually have to read this book to the very last page to figure out what happened. I mean, it keeps, keeps turning. Um, I was fascinated. That's why I went back to review it, because I thought, you know, maybe there's, it's so frustrating to actually talk to authors about books like this before or right when they publish, because some of the stuff you really like to discuss, everyone <laughs> will hate you if you do, because you completely ruined Well, I can book. tell you, you know, there was a, there was something on Facebook that said, can you describe your book in five spoiler-free phrases? And I figured that out. And that is a gorgeous house on Cape Cod, a shocking divorce, a sympathetic FBI agent, an emerald necklace, and a new best friend. Do Very you, nice. Do you get it from that? Do you get it from that? Oh, it certainly makes you want to read it. I hope so. My, my total goal. You know, it's interesting because I work, you know, you work on a book for a year. I worked on this book for a year and I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea who was good and I had no idea who was bad. And I just, um, George R.R. R. Martin calls my kind of writing a gardener because you plant a seed and you cultivate it and water it and work on it and then you see what grows. And so the joy of seeing what grew from the seed of the house guest has really been amazing to me. And I love that you talk about, you know, and it's not only the ending, it's the middle and the, you know, a quarter of the way through where something happens that's um, either a twist or a reveal or a little bit of each. Uh, and I want to tell you that it was just as surprising to me as it is to the reader. And um, I hope it will be to the reader. And it's it's quite wonderful. And then this, you know, this precipice of, here we go, and I hope people love it. And so I'm very grateful um, for your kind words. You know, years ago, Manette Walters and I were having a discussion at the Poison Pen, and she said something I often quote, and I've always remembered, in which she said, the end has to be as good or better than the beginning. And the truth is, it's very easy, so, you know, to, to come up with a shocking opener or, you know, dynamite, whatever it is, but to actually finish it is hard. And I think in this case, you did it. You really did a great job. It truly delivers, you know, the beginning. Well, you'll find out when you get to read it. But let me say that I didn't ask my last question quite correctly. Are you working? Oh, I love asking you this because I know the answer. Are you working on another book, Hank? Oh, am I working on another book? Um, yes. And I, I just sent in, I just sent in last week, I sent in, sent it in. And I'll tell you, uh, it, I even sent it in with an ending. Sometimes in the past, that ending, because I need to stick the ending, and it's really hard to do. You're so right. 
um, sometimes I have made my deadline by sending in my book saying, and here's the book and there are three more chapters to go and I still have to figure out what happens and I will. And I figure that my editor, by the time she's read the beginning, I will have the ending. Finished out the ending. Right. Sort of, arm, you know, manipulating the uh, the timing. But in this case, and I'll tell you, uh, the new book is called One Wrong Word. One Ooh. Wrong Word. And it's about a PR consultant who lives and dies by making people believe the world is a certain way. She People want the world to seem one way and she makes it be that way. But on page one, we realize that all those words have been unfairly turned against her. So it's a question of, can she come back from this one wrong word? I'll tell you all about it next time, but because who knows what it'll turn out to be, but I sent it in with an ending, one wrong word. It'll be out at this time next year. So I'm hope, I hope I'm talking with you about one wrong word. Oh, I'm, I'm, next sure year. I'm hopeful that we will. I can't be sure that we will, but I'm really hopeful that we will. But, you know, that leads me to a final question before Jacob pops up, which is, you know, how easy is it you're going out to talk about Ta-da, the house guest? And yet the book that you just finished and the story you've been immersed in recently is not the house guest, which you finished a year ago, and however, you know, I'll, but let's say roughly a year ago, but in fact, one wrong word. Do you ever, you know, stumble or, or you know, have a moment where you, you're talking about the house guest and actually your mind is fixed on one wrong word and you kind of- I had to actually, wrong? I have to, I, I had to actually uh, physically, emotionally, set my brain to talk about the house guest and sort of tuck one wrong word and all of its characters away because they you're so right you know so many writers you understand this so perfectly one wrong word was, was my top of mind book exactly and so I had to sort of tap it down uh, and bring back the house guest you know we know our books so well I mean if you gave me a manuscript of the house guest right now and you changed one word of it, I would say, I didn't write that word. That's not how I wrote it. I, I know it so intently, intensely, perfectly. Um, but once you write another book, your brain cells are sort of filled up with the other one. So yeah, great question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrangle my way back to the house guest though. And the more I talk about it, um, the more I think, oh yeah, that was good. Oh yeah, I like that part. You know, the scene in the country club, um, is one of my favorites. And the scene on the on the patio in Cape Cod is another one of my favorites. So when I think about those again, and when I hear readers refer to them, I think, oh yeah, that was actually pretty good. <laughs> so I love it. Well, I do but, love you it. know, yours and I mean, you know, this is my 33rd or 34th year of doing this. And it was like a few months after I opened the Poison Pen when we had, we barely started doing author events, but we had an author. Um, who, you know, did a presentation. I was, I was out in the audience because I didn't know any better and said the author's up there, you know, talking about the book and all. And people asked, and I saw this sort of deer in the headlight moment come over the author. And I thought to myself, he doesn't remember. He's already <laughs> written another book and yeah. he's going to look like an absolute idiot because, because you know, asking a question about the book he's there for and he can't remember. Yeah. And you know, I, of course, had just read it, you know, in order to do it. So I popped up to my feet and went up to the front, you know, and and sort of stirred it in that direction. And ever since, we have almost always, except occasionally an author requests a solo, but either I or one of the staff is there 
And yeah. most of the reason we're there is to protect the author from having forgotten which book they're there to talk we about. We are so grateful. I, I'll never forget one of my very first book events. It wasn't for my book. It was for another author's book before I even had a book. And someone asked him a question about his novel. And he said, uh, they said, you know, why did you have Sally do X, right. Y, and Z? And he's like, uh, I don't, I don't exactly. know. Exactly. And I thought, didn't you write that? You know, didn't you write that book? And now I totally understand that. You sure. know, who's Sally? I don't know. I, did, I wrote that a year ago. But I'm back in the house guest. I'm totally back living with the house guest now. Wonderful. Well, that's really good to hear. So, Jacob, pop up from your magic screen here and see if there are any questions that the audience is directing in our right. Hi, Hank. We have uh, tons of questions oh. and comments. Uh, hopefully, we can get to them all. Um, Tons is good. We like that. Thank oh, you yeah. all for coming. I can't see you all. I can't see the comments. They don't show on the platform that we are broadcasting from. So I'll go back and look at the comments on the Facebook page on Poison Pen Facebook page afterward. But I just that's why I'm not responding to you individually, because I can't I just I don't know you're here. Right. But Jacob does. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I got him right here. Okay. Uh, this one's from Linda. I met you at a book talk with Suzanne Brockman and won a copy of your first book. Uh, I, I've enjoyed your work since then. What do you know now that you didn't know when you first started? What was the most difficult thing to learn? And was your change in natural progression or did you have to think it through? Oh, Linda, kind of that's, a question, but. that's a question. No, no, that's question. a great, great question, Linda. Thank you. And I love Suzanne Brockman. That was a life-changing, career-changing event. So thank you. And that was a while ago, wasn't it? Um, the thing I've learned about writing, I guess, is two, two fast things. One is um, all I can control is that I write the best book that I possibly can. The world changes every moment. Timing changes every moment. Luck changes every moment. Life changes every moment. And I have learned just to try to focus on just being the best author of the best book I possibly can every time. And the sort of corollary of that is that unlike writing for television, where sometimes I, I go in at nine in the morning and I type up a story and do its story really fast and put it on the air at six o'clock and it's over and it is what it is. Um, writing a novel takes time. It takes much more time than I ever really realized to make it be really good. And as a result, I've learned that I'm going to have terrible writing days. I'm going to have days when I look at my manuscript and I think, this is the worst thing that anybody has ever written. And then instead of being afraid of that, I think, yeah, it's pretty bad. You know, you can fix it later. Go on. And I just go on because it's not a test like in college where you'd hand in your paper it's just a day-to-day, word-by-word, bird-by-bird path, journey to a first draft, and then I can fix it, and then it will be better, and then I can fix it again, it will be better. So I have learned, and answered your question in one word, patience. I've learned, I've learned patience, and I've learned what I can control and what I can't control. Oh, Does excellent. that make sense? Barbara, you're looking skeptical. No, I'm not. Actually, I'm thinking about it. No, I'm not skeptical. I was thinking it was a brilliant answer to a, a, um, an excellent and complex complex yeah. question. Yeah. Thank you. This is a this is a very similar question. Um, 
what are your least favorite and favorite parts of writing? My favorite, they're the same. And it's interesting. They're both, one, they're two ends of the same thing. What you need to write a great novel, a compelling novel, is a really good core idea. Just one little gorgeous, perfect gem of a jewel of an idea. And so the part I like the least is when I don't have those. You know, I know people who have say, oh, I have drawers of ideas. I have a million of them. I can tell you very specifically that I have a file in my email uh, called book ideas. And when I was getting ready to write, to write the house guest, I thought, ooh, I'll just go into my book idea file and find out what the, what the book should be. <laughs> and it was empty. There was not, I had just titled it book ideas, but I had never put anything in it. So waiting for the idea is the worst part. I, I sometimes I, you know, I know I have faith in the process that the universe will, I know it sounds weird, the universe will provide me an idea when the time is right. I know that. And it's knock on wood. It's always happened. It's happened 15 times. I only need one. I only need one at a time. But there are days when I think, any time now, you know, I'm ready for this idea. But when I, but I love the most is when I get that idea and I can just see it. I just know this is an idea that will hold, you know, a hundred thousand words. I can do this. I don't know what the story is going to be, but there it is. And let's do this. And that's what gets me to the computer every day. It's like, I can't wait to find out what happens because I love this story. So it's that core gem idea. When I don't have it, it's the worst. When I do have it, it's the best. Excellent answer. Again, um, this one is from Jenny. How do you come up with twists? Do you have a method? Is there um, is it trying to anticipate a reader's expectations and work against them? It's some of that, Jenny. Yes, it's some of that. But what it what it is at the beginning of it is, I'll say it again. What does someone want? And then how can I make that the most impossible thing to attain? What obstacles? can I put in their way? What misperceptions might they have? What they what, what, might not, what might they not know? That's going to be the obstacle in the way. I'm gonna make their lives worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and make them work to fight to get that thing. So when there is something that happens that's a, that's a surprise, that it's something that stops them in their tracks. So I think as we were talking earlier, and it's so wise that, you were, that you're onto this twist thing, is that I don't, plan it or think about it. I, I, I know it sounds weird, but I honestly don't. It's just a thing that happens. You, oh, you, somebody knocks on the door and I think, oh, I wonder who that is. And then in my mind, I open the door and I think, holy cow, it's that person. And I'm just as surprised. I'm just as surprised as the character is. So when I try to technically untangle how something happens, that's the hardest question of all, because I, I cannot, I cannot explain it. It's just telling a story. And I just don't know what it is until it happens. Okay, this one's from Renee. Have you ever used longhand to write your stories? Or how do you write? <laughs> if I wrote in longhand, I would not even be able to read it. I mean, I would not even be able to read it. After all these years of being a reporter, I write really fast. I can write really fast. And I can read about half of it. And just as long as I get about half of it. So I would type on my computer just in Word, 
And there are some days, and I'm a terrible typer, even I'm even after all these years, I'm a terrible typist. And some days I'm typing so fast that, you know, that thing that used to pop up on Word that says, well, there, there was this little banner thing, that a violator that popped up on Word that said, there are so many errors, there are so many misspellings and grammatical errors in this manuscript that Word can no longer correct them. And that's, and that's what I look forward to because that means I'm typing so fast that I, I don't even know what's coming out of my fingers. And there are days when I look back at what I've typed on the computer and think, oh yeah, I wrote that. Huh. I don't even remember, I don't even remember writing it. it. Doesn't happen very often, but I look forward to that. The only time I write in longhand, and I will show you this, I just happen to have my notebook for the book here. The only time I write in longhand is in a notebook like this, and you can see all the pages of my notes. Um, when I need to think what needs to happen or what somebody's motivation is, or, you know, in, I remember in, in one scene, I had someone come home and there was something on the door, something taped to their door. And I thought, oh, wonder what that is. It was an envelope. I wonder what's in the envelope. And the way I figured out what was in the envelope was just by longhand in my notebook, writing all the things that could be in an envelope a letter, a picture, a newspaper clipping, a recipe, a blank piece of paper. Think of, you know, a, a page from a will, a magazine clipping, who knows, all those things. And I just let my brain go. And that works better when I'm, when I'm writing it down. So I have my computer and I have my handy notebook and together, knock on wood, that seems to work. Although one could add that neither one can really keep up with your mind. <laughs> You're racing so fast. I mean, but that is, I think that is people who have bad handwriting very often. That is the problem. Your brain is just so, you know, I think a week ago, Sunday, I had a little cheat sheet from the American Bookseller Association about this is a day so you can do some marketing thing. And I'm reading along and it was National Handwriting Day. So I, I wrote to everybody because I was writing one of our e and I said, Today is National Handwriting Today, and I'm typing to you because my handwriting, I can't celebrate National no. Handwriting Day because my handwriting is completely illegible. Even illegible. I, I know, even, at, why is it always the most important word? Don't forget to, you know, when you think, oh, why, I can't get that right. I honestly get emails from readers sending me photographs of books I've signed, and they say, can you tell me what this says? Because I can't right. even read that, so sorry. I hear you. Right. Anything else, Jacob? Yeah, one last question, Hank. Uh, how are you going to celebrate your publication day? Well, golly, I mean, I, I, I'm going to celebrate my publication day by just being so happy that it actually happened. I'm, I'm in love with this book. I love that you all get to read it. There's a launch party at a bookstore in Boston to which you are all invited in person. That's going to be crazy. I have to get up at like I want to say four in the morning to make my plane to go to Atlanta. So I fear that the actual celebration of pub day will come a little bit later when I'm finally home with maybe a little champagne and a little celebration. Um, it's, it's quite a moment, I do have to say, on the day that the book comes out. It's, uh, it never it never, it always brings tears to my eyes because it, 
it was so difficult to do. And the whole thing is just so unlikely that my 14th book is out. So I don't only celebrate on launch day. I celebrate every day. It's just amazing to me all the time. But I wish you were here to celebrate with me. Well, I wish we were too. But on the other hand, we've had this wonderful conversation together. And thank you, Jacob, for facilitating it. I want to thank everyone who has taken time to watching it, whether you're watching it now live or whether you're going to watch it later. You can also recommend it to people can watch it on YouTube and eventually there will be a podcast. Uh, so that's all very exciting. And Hank is, as I pointed out, autographing our copies of The House Guest at this very moment. Well, not this very moment, but very short. In about two minutes. Very moment. And they will be winging our way to us. So I have read Hank's books all these years, and I have admired and enjoyed many of them. But I think this might actually be your best book. Thank you. Well, I always give 100% to every book. I know. And my goal is to have to get better and better and better. So thank you. But you said a really true thing, which is that you you can write the best book you can write at the time that you write it. Yes. And you know, what's wonderful is to see a path where your best book can be better than your best book before and can be better. You know, it's, it's nice to be on a on an upward path and thank not you. a level path or even worse a down path. So I think the house guest definitely is a up path. So congratulations. It was really a pleasure to read it, Hank. Anyway, goodbye, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. And thanks for joining us. Good night. Night, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, Barbara. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.